You're listening to a podcast brought to you by international law firm Trowers and Hamlins, combining market sector thought leadership, advice, and ideas, helping businesses and governments prepare for the future. Welcome to part two of our discussion with Oz Ahmed about how ESG is impacting financial institutions. Now, Oz, um, unfortunately, um, there's been quite a few supposedly ESG or green funds or green bonds, which in reality have had little or no real impact compared with others which are really delivering change. How do you think governments and regulators can incentivize behavioral change, particularly within the financial institution sector, which I think it might be fair to say often open themselves to up to accusations of being focused on short-term returns for shareholders. Yeah, so this is, um, this is something I've actually lived through, to be honest. And what I might do is talk about behaviours more broadly and, and what's happening when it comes to behaviours and then talk about regulators and others can do from a carrot and stick perspective. But I want to, uh, and this is something that I've been working on for a considerable amount of time, and honestly, it was really driving a lot of what I've done as a CEO for banks. Uh, it's, been a, it's been a core tenant of w- what I've wanted to do when coming into banking and banking as a CEO, and also when it was not so popular, by the way. And what I have found over the last few years, and I was remarking to a, a Datin Sunita Rajkumar, who's the, who runs Climate Governance Malaysia, um, uh, the chapter in Malaysia, and I was remarking to her about part of me doesn't want to do anything with sustainability, like kind of the talks and so on and so forth anymore. And she asked me why. And I said, there are so many people just jumping on the bandwagon. They don't, one, either know what they're talking about, or even if they've done a bit of research about something, that they can do something on the surface, they don't understand what is required to drive change in their organizations. We're talking about leaders in financial services and otherwise. And I found it quite off-putting. And that is exactly the reason why you get greenwashing. It's a mindset issue. And the mindset is, and if you can imagine it, particularly within banking, we're talking about people who've grown up with the kind of, uh, again, references of Friedman Doctrine, but also uh, the culture of, you know, uh, greed is good, you know, kind of Gordon Gecko and the celebration <laughs> of that. And whether that was, you know, they were in some, you know, very aggressive investment bank or not, the, the you know, the banking sector certainly had that, Dominic, I don't know what the opposite of a shine is, um, <laughs> had that around it. And if you think about people who've gone through their careers in that type of mindset, of course, it naturally impacts people. And the constant discussion around short-term profitability, I think is one of the most frequent I've heard when uh, talking about uh, decision-making within an organization. And I think that that mindset issue, and if you think about people who've had their careers over however many, 20 years, 30 years, in that arena, if you think about them and all of their key people that work with them, how do you think they think? I mean. I mean, do you actually think, really, honestly, that someone's just going to, you know, switch all of a sudden? They're not. And, and I feel that as you get, you know, kind of more senior in a career, guess what? You have less time to educate yourself. You have less time to really immerse yourself in, a, in something to understand it. So I feel that there is a mindset issue and it's really a talent issue that leads to this kind of greenwashing. 
um, that you've mentioned. And, and like I say, it is very disappointing and it absolutely is uh, one of the key reasons I had made that remark to Dutton Sunita and, and was, you know, very firmly contemplating it as well. I think I thought I contributed a, a decent amount and that's probably enough. But um, what is the role that regulators uh, and government can play? Now, the mindset point I don't think gets addressed by regulators and government. I will explain how I think that gets addressed afterwards. But the role I think they can play certainly carrot and stick. So both incentives and disincentives, but also something in between. Now, I'll give you an example of each, and I'll keep it to climate change for now, but this is, you know, usable elsewhere. So, for example, you can introduce carbon taxation. That's a pretty straightforward one that governments and regulators can use. From banking, regulators can introduce capital relief of sorts when you have aligned in a way that is against a, an appropriate regulated standard. And, and that's, for example, that's a incentive. And people who do things in the middle just help someone along. And what do I mean by that? A regulator can say, by the end of 2025, all banks will have to report to the TCFD standards. Again, I'm staying on climate. To be honest, the TCFD standards are a recommendation set. The recommendation set, as it's structured, can apply to beyond climate, just FYI for people out there. But this is an example of um, something in the middle that can be done. And I would say, if I was going to say anything about this topic, I'd say it's not what you expect, but what you inspect that gets done. And I think that getting to a point of integrated financial reporting, integrated, so financial, non-financial, to a required standard, say TCFD, is a great starting point. Because once you inspect something, uh, as opposed to expect people to do something, you have to show the kind of warts and all. And I think that when people are disclosing these things, it's a lot easier to know if people are kind of just using it as marketing as opposed to being a proper disclosure. And where you layer that on with third-party uh, review, uh, even more so. And I think that's a, a critical starting point. So you, you would note how I haven't started with the, for example, in banks, capital relief, or some type of taxation. Yeah. I, I do think that middle piece is something that's easy to do, it's reasonable to do, it starts people rolling, and I think you can build on it to make it more robust. But coming back to the point on, well, okay, if you do that, whether you do any of these things, Oz, that you've said between these three things, guess what? An organization still might not change. <laughs> right? And, and, and we all know it, right? Because what's the recent flavor? Let's talk about that and make it the, the center of the world. And then what's next? And we'll just find a way, but underlying nothing's really changed. Now, how do you make that change? And I think that that change is squarely at the board of directors. Squarely. And what do I mean by that? Let's take a typical bank, and I'll use banking as an example, but this example is extendable elsewhere. And you want to make a change when it comes to sustainability. Now, remember, we've discussed the point around strategy and innovation driving value, risk management driving value, and access to capital driving value. We've already spoken about that. And let's assume that that is now appreciated. What is it that the board of directors can do, even if they don't have a background in it's very simple, it's just a few questions. And so I do a kind of training for board of directors, and I appreciate, and I, I typically get this slot 
that's towards the end of the training and I appreciate you know board of directors have been on training for a while probably tired so I give them a little cheat sheet I say board of directors and this is typically to banks whoever is the chairman of the board all you need to do is one thing ask your CEO one thing ask them what is your sustainability strategy and what is the value that can be driven through sustainability and innovation ask them that question and watch your CEO freak out and go and try and learn and understand what that is so they can present something back. And then if you are the chair, uh, chairperson of the board risk committee, what you need to ask your CRO is, what are our sustainability related links in the long and short term, particularly around um, transition and physical risk? Uh, and what are our plans around mitigating those risks? And then watch your CRO freak out. And then if you are the chair of the board audit committee, you ask the CFO, so what are our current non-financial disclosures? Uh, what are they aligned to? Which standards? And also, what is the management information you use when it comes to sustainability metrics? And then the CFO will freak out. And I think one of the important things that the chair of the nomination and remuneration committee can do, actually they can do a couple of things that are really important. One is by aligning incentives to sustainability KPIs, to have sustainability related KPIs within a scorecard of a CEO and other executives that they cover, and also have um, a remuneration pay and rations linked to it. And then the second thing that they need to do is basically reject all candidates that they that come to they have to approve where that candidate has no sustainability credential at all. So that that is an important role the chair of the nomination and enumeration committee can do. And what there's one role that the shareholder can play, which is provide a good budget to the board of directors to go off and do some trainings. So when the executives come back, they know if what they bring back is BS or not. So that is what I would say is going to drive the change in the organization. So you have this kind of board directive, and even if people are not equipped, they will work really hard to do it. And actually, there's a change process happening throughout the nomination and remuneration committee as they choose the leadership for banks and others. So I think that that is, I think, what changes mindsets and therefore changes the type of talent that drives organization forwards those that understand the need to make appropriate returns for an organization. I, you know, I think that's something absolutely central for many reasons. But at the same time, I'm not afraid to take on the sustainability agenda along with it. And I think that that's, um, those are the types of things that I think make the long-term change from greenwashing. So I appreciate, I know you were asking more about what is it that regulators and government can do. I would actually say it's more organizational behavior and in that organizational behavior, what I would say is that that would be related more to, you know, the type of talent you have running the organization. You're almost talking about a cultural shift um, in, in the approach of these organizations, which is, which is fascinating. I mean, would it be fair to say then that one of the key challenges for financial institutions when it comes to adopting ESG principles or adapting to them is actually ironically governance within those, those organizations? 100% and you hit the nail on the head. So if we talk about in the framing of ESG, and ESG typically is a data set, by the way, that's typically what it's known for, but it has a broader uh, usage and that's fine. 
uh, these days, but I would say certainly the G, the governance. Your governance practices and making sure that your governance practices are ones that are best in class to facilitate this, are, are, I think are absolutely critical. And I think that is a role that um, folks who can advise on good governance, and we obviously like Trower, Hamlin's and others, can play in saying, if the board wants to do just kind of an audit on, or a check on an audit audit, but you know, kind of a, a review of uh, their governance setup and how well it is doing in terms of facilitating the things that I mentioned, you know, I think that's, that's a really uh, valuable exercise for a board to do. Speaking of, sort of cultural perspectives, it does seem that the Islamic finance sector's perspective on, on social responsibility is is aligned, or there are certainly you know significant overlaps with ESG principles, and they seem to align quite closely. Do you think that's true? And if so, does that give Islamic banks an edge when it comes to adopting ESG principles? Uh, yes, it does. I want to explain it in a little bit of detail, but I get. Um... There's a lot to cover, so I'll try and answer me and do much. So I want to start out by what happened in Islamic banking historically. So Islamic banking wasn't, or Islamic finance, wasn't what you see it today, which is effectively a halal version of fractional reserve banking. That's not how it started out. It very much started out wanting to take a bit more risk and being in the real economy. And, and that's super important, being in the real economy. Globally, systemically important institutions have more than 50% of their deposits in the financial economy, not in the real economy. And that is the reason why SMEs and individuals can't get financing. That's the reason. That's mm. one of the reasons. Uh, there is an important role that uh, those banks play in terms of facilitating efficient markets, of course. But that percentage is just, well, Islamic banks, you'll find a majority, 90% plus in the real economy. And in the past, they had done so in such a way that they were not mature, and what ended up happening is people had a lot of loss that was made, a lot of loss, losses in Islamic banking because of trying to have a different setup. And what eventually ended up happening is that you saw this migration to a halal version of fractional reserve banking, which has an incredibly important role to play in society to be inclusive of folks who want access to financing. So I'm not taking anything away from it at all. However, Islamic banks, and this has been my experience from work, an Islamic bank that has a, a, a conventional parent, lost their soul because effectively they were doing things that wasn't in line with their values. Not completely. It, part of it was, but not completely. And I think that when the sustainability agenda came to the fore, what you effectively saw was um, hearts uniting because the Islamic banks finally had a channel to push a natural value that is within their organization. And it very much is about having that positive impact. Why is that the case? Because Islamic financing, when it comes to a Islamic canonical perspective, comes under the area that's regarding dealings with people, all peoples. It doesn't come under the area of worship, which is very specifically for methods to worship as per uh, the prophet of Islam. So it's under the area of dealings with people. And in dealings with people, Islam is focused, is focused on ensuring harmonious society, focused around harmonious individual family units. That's, that, you know, that's, a, that's a, a driving purpose behind it. So not necessarily just uh, Muslims. You'll see elements that everybody can relate to. Everybody can relate to this. In Islam, there's something called zakat. What is the purpose of zakat? Its primary purpose is 
to ensure that money stays within the economy by making taxation on wealth, not income. So you have an incentive to continually keep money in the economy and consume and so on and so forth. And we all now know the economics and importance of that. And of course, if um, where you have the money, you'll always find people who are hard on their luck to support them. That's, a, that, that, that's obviously an important part of it. You'll find that, you know, it's not just necessarily a social kind of religion. I, I say it's the most capitalistic Abrahamic religion. Why? <laughs> it doesn't have a day of rest, does it? It has go to the mosque on the Friday for the prayers and then afterwards go and open the markets. So, it, you know, certainly there is this entire point around, um, it, you know, it's not, it shouldn't be caricatured as socialistic. But the nature and the values of it would certainly say that in the work that you do, you have a responsibility beyond just making money. And that responsibility is this deputization or an old words vicegerency of the earth and the things on it, animals and, and flora and fauna. Uh, and it is also on those broader society uh, for people who are not in a position necessarily of power. And when you look at that overall, that sounds a lot like ESG or sustainability to me. So when this came in, you, what you found is that Islamic banks had this moment of hearts united. They found a place to channel. And that's why you see the VBI community of practitioners be the ones who are leading this agenda in Malaysia, though you know it doesn't necessarily just have to be the Islamic banks. And I'll give you the most stark example of the hearts uniting. And that was during, um, I think you mentioned it, um, around the issuance of the world's first UN SDG Sukuk, where mm. I was the CEO of the organization doing that. And we went on an investor roadshow and we, there were 60 investors back in the day where you could meet people. There were 60 investors who were there, plus investors. And we were going through the investor presentation. I was making the investor presentation. We got to a slide and it was that colorful UN SDG boxes. And we had circled some of them to say the ones that the proceeds of the Sukuk will be going to support. And underneath these boxes, we had this exclusion list and it said on it amongst other things, tobacco, gambling, alcohol, an investor raises their hand and says, well, um, I assume that exclusion list is because it's a sukuk. And some people will be familiar that there are excluded sectors that Islamic banks cannot finance. Mm -hmm. And I said, no, that's not the reason it's there. That is the UN SDG framework exclusion list. And, mm. it, it, and, and what I commonly say to people, what I often say to people is that it's nice that in 2015, there was an agreement from a global perspective through the UN SDGs of something that uh, Islam came up with 1400 years ago. So, and, and, and to me, it was, I mean, it's great. I mean, the fact that we're focusing on these things is really, is, is really good. But it shows me and explains and, and certainly, for me, validates that natural combination of the values that we have when it comes to sustainability and the values when it comes to Islamic financing and its tenets and its values. And that the Venn diagram is high. There are areas of differences, but the Venn diagram are, you know, very much significantly covered over uh, with each other and just to reiterate some of those points i made being in the real economy doing something with the organization that speaks to the responsibilities we have as a human race on the planet flora and fauna and others in society 
all of those things are naturally things that anybody who's looked at Islamic banking, Islamic finance and the principles would naturally say that's BAU. And we then join that with the point I made earlier around mindset. You don't have to change mindset. People get it. And, and I think that that's why Islamic banks have an ability to lead in this agenda. And hopefully we're still a small industry. People will learn and people can scale. Absolutely. From your perspective, what would be your vision for your organization over the next few years when it comes to, to taking these principles and, as you said, that overlap between ESG and Islamic financing to the next level? What, what would you want to see happening with your organization? I think there's a couple of things that Islamic banks can do. And one's kind of BAU and one's kind of innovation. I'll explain the BAU one in the context of what we suffer today. Most people will appreciate that during the COVID-19 pandemic, there was a lockdown and then uh, there was a moratorium that was issued. Now, during that moratorium of payments of uh, financing obligations for a period of time, there was something happened. And it's, it's a thing that probably isn't discussed much. And the thing that happened was almost something like time value of money copying things up. <laughs> that was something <laughs> along those lines. And what had happened was that in a conventional financing, if you have one of these moratoriums, you can do something called compounding of interest. And that compounding of interest allows the IRR of that asset to stay the same. So what happens if you don't compound interest? You do get back the same amount, but you just don't get it back at the same time. And because of this timing difference, there's reinvestment risk and so on and so forth. Now, what does that mean to the everyday person is the question. To the everyday person, now let's remember, we're talking about a global pandemic, we're talking about a shutdown of an economy, and we're talking about a moratorium that looks to help people ease burden. But in the long term, that setup increases their burden quite significantly. Because if you make this change with the existing accounting standards, which even Islamic banks have to deal with, what ends up happening is, is that people, everyday people, will have to pay more in some way, a bullet payment, a higher repayment, something like that, a longer repayment. And Islamic banking has to work within these accounting rules that are not really 100% fit for the nature of what it does. And I think there's a lot of learnings to go from that. So I think that Islamic banks did take proportionately higher hits because of this impact, because there's an accounting impact that occurs because of this. I don't want to bore people with the details, but it, it does impact the performance and therefore the equity of the bank potentially. And Islamic banks certainly take more of it. Now, there's ways to manage it, and I think the central bank and others have, we've managed through that process. But there's a learning to come from this around the Islamic banking standards when it came to this, and was that the more the right thing to do when it came to the everyday people who are now going to have potentially increased burden? Or was the conventional way of doing it, compounding interest and so on and so forth, the right way to do it? And I think that that's a conversation that we can have and learn from. And that's one of many BAU things that Islamic banks can lead, what they're already doing that's different, and why that is maybe more just. And I will caveat this, that Islamic banks generally have to work within the system, so although they, they will find ways to work within the system, so, um, and that's the nature of the way the accounting standards are set, the way we're regulated, and so on and so forth. Then there's some value-add things, and I think, again, the Islamic banks, there, there are several 
that I think stand out in this regard. Um, and I don't mind calling out colleagues, I would call them, in uh, Bank Islam and Bank Wamalat, who have really led the way when it comes to the combination of social capital that you can get from uh, Islamic sources. And I'll explain that in just a moment. And combining that with financial services sector to deliver something innovative. So I feel that those are the two ways that the Islamic banking sector can lead, uh, show these examples of how the business model is different, and maybe that's a conversation we should have for the future if, this, if things of this nature ever happen again. But I gave one example, there are others. And also in terms of innovation, just because they look at capital in a different way. Um, and for example, the social capital that I'm addressing is zakat, sadaqah, and waqf, and what you can do with that potentially, if you combine that with uh, existing banking capital to deliver better impact for customers. I look forward to hearing and, and reading of, of that journey. Um, sounds like a very exciting one and one that needs to be made as well. Oz, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to end the podcast on what has become sort of the mandatory question um, on forums like this. It's sort of revolving around the impact of COVID-19. How would you say COVID-19 has impacted the ESG agenda? I would say that there's a couple of things that have been taken away from it that I think will resonate for years to come. There were billions of metric tons of carbon dioxide that were never admitted. Obviously, right? Billions, silver lining. Right. Uh, and we would hope it was a silver lining, other than the fact that it didn't make a, it didn't make a dent in terms mm. of, you know, the trajectory of the targets made in that UNFCCC uh, conference of 2015, mm. or the, you know, the, the Paris Agreement. It didn't, it didn't make enough of a dent. And, and I think that that's really, really sobering. Mm. You know, the billions of metric tons of carbon dioxide that were never admitted. But, and I think that that's a very sobering piece of information that mm. I think should be a learning we take away and say, if that's the case, when we start to open up economies, you know, we need to accelerate this agenda in whichever small role we can play. Then when we talk about the growing difference in inequity continues to grow, uh, you know, it used to be the case that, you know, X hundred people used to uh, have the top, you know, whatever it was, 60% of the world's wealth and yeah. so on. So, and that number keeps getting smaller and smaller. You know, I'm from the UK. Uh, the usage of food banks has increased. This is not homeless people using it. These are people who have houses who are using mm. food banks. The inequity from a social perspective is growing. Um, one of the most uh, worrying images I saw was when the lockdown eased the first time in Malaysia last year the most popular place people went to was were pawnbrokers. And that to me is extremely worrying. And I think this point around being able to give people dignity is exceptionally important. And so, for example, I think there are things we can do better in order to learn from what we've got from COVID, which is whether you talk about white flag, whether you talk about people lining up at pawnbrokers, all of those different things. I think that we have an opportunity to acknowledge that these things are very real and we've had an opportunity and a time to see it unfold in front of us. Uh, that maybe there's something we can do better. And people say, great, a CEO of a bank saying we should do something better. How many times have I heard that? Let me give you an example. The Better Malaysia Foundation 
So I referenced ethnicity to Rajkumar, as, and this is something that's being championed by uh, Tantri Vincent Tan, is looking at how do you find a way to give people dignity through affordable housing. That affordable housing isn't something like it's a complex on some land in the middle of nowhere that's completely undesirable. Actually, bringing affordable housing in a desirable way to give people that dignity and that home ownership and looking at everybody playing a role uh, to do that. And I'm very happy that Arajahi Bank is working with that group who are looking at addressing this issue in a way to push forward this agenda of after COVID, we're going to do things for the people who have potentially suffered the most and find a way to put them back on track in our small way. And, and I think that COVID allows us to have a front row seat on particularly social matters, and also that it doesn't matter even if the global economy slows down. We have a carbon and a climate change issue uh, that we all need to sharply focus on. Absolutely. Uh, that, that aligns actually quite closely with an example I was going to give about one of the small things that we've been doing to help in any way we can, which is, which is actually in the affordable housing sector as well. We, we work with a lot of institutions in the affordable housing sector from the UK and Europe to the Middle East. And, and beyond in relation to raising finance, to putting together their and marketing their ESG credentials in order to access capital um, at better rates. And we work with local planners and, and regional planners around building affordable housing and affordable housing areas that aren't, as you say, in the middle of nowhere and of poor quality, but of a sufficient standard that it creates a pleasant and productive environment for, for people living there. So. Uh, and I think that this point on affordable housing is fantastic that Trower Hamlets is working on that. And it's a testament to the fact that whether you're a law firm, whether you're a bank, there's something we all can do. We have access to resources. Some of that is knowledge, people's time, ideas and capital and so on and so forth. And there's something that we can do to give people um, that bit of dignity. I mean, most of us are in a position when we get to do these podcasts and have them broadcast. Most of the people on there are individuals that don't have to worry about what they're leaving their kids behind. Mm. There's something. And, but the, the reality is, is that as uh, inequality grows, and, you know, we're not going to solve that today, but there are things that we can do to be able to give that back to folks. If we work collaboratively, we can do it so uh, in a way where it makes sense for everybody, where it's not just, for example, straight-up charity. For-profit organisations are not charities. But that doesn't mean that they, if we work within an ecosystem and come up with ideas, and I, again, the Better Malaysia Foundation, and I think this is very much driven by the vision of uh, Tantri Vincent Tan and about how one gives back and how you know, he can bring the groups of people together to address that issue, um, is very much uh, uh, possible. So no, it's really great to hear uh, the work that you're doing. Thank you, Oz, and, and likewise, really great to hear uh, the work you're doing and to hear your views on this fascinating and quite extensive and complicated subject. Um, if there's any person that can sort of pull the strings together on the subject, it's you, Oz. I know you've been involved in this area for, for a very long time. Oz, I think our time's up on this podcast, um, and I'd like to thank you again very much for your time and for sharing your insights with us. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much for the opportunity, Elias, and also the team at Trower Hamlins and also at Raji Bank Malaysia that put it all together. So um, really, my thanks to them and my thanks to you as well.
You have been listening to a podcast brought to you by Trowers and Hamlins. Find us at trowers.com and join in the conversation on Twitter at Trowers or find us on LinkedIn and Instagram.